Good evening. I hope you've had a great day today. Welcome to BVJ's Bedtime Stories. I'm Big Voice Jay, and this is a show where we get you ready for a good night's sleep with public domain short stories just for you. Links to all the stories can be found at the show notes at bedtimewithbvj.com. And if you'd like to support the show, there's a buy me a coffee link on every page and post. Tonight, we continue our story, The Gold Bug, by Edgar Allan Poe. With a heavy heart, I accompanied my friend. We started about four o'clock, Legrand, Jupiter, the dog, and myself. Jupiter had with him the scythe and spades, the whole of which he insisted upon carrying, more through fear, it seemed to me, of trusting either the implements within reach of will than with any excess of industry or complaisance. His demeanor was dogged in the extreme, and that deuced bug were the sole words which escaped his lips during the journey. For my own part, I had charge of a couple of dark lanterns, while Legrand contented himself with the scarabaeus, which he carried attached to the end of a bit of whipcord, twirling it to and fro with the air of a conjurer as he went. When I observed this last plain evidence of my friend's aberration of mind, I could scarcely refrain from tears. I thought it best, however, to humor his fancy, at least for the present, or until I could adapt some more energetic measures with a chance of success. In the meantime, I endeavored, but all in vain, to sound him in regard to the object of the expedition. Having succeeded in inducing me to accompany him, he seemed unwilling to hold conversation upon any topic of minor importance, and to all my questions, vouchsafed no other reply than, We shall see. We crossed the creek at the head of the island by means of a skiff, and ascending the high grounds on the shore of the mainland, proceeded in a northwesterly direction, though a tract of country excessively wild and desolate, where no trace of a human footstep was to be seen. Legrand led the way with decision, pausing only for an instant, here and there, to consult what appeared to be certain landmarks of his own contrivance upon a former occasion. In this manner we journeyed for about two hours, and the sun was just setting when we entered a region infinitely more dreary than any yet seen. It was a species of tableland, near the summit of an almost inaccessible hill, densely wooded from base to pinnacle, and interspersed with huge crags that appeared to lie loosely upon the soil, and in many cases were prevented from precipitating themselves into the valleys below, merely by the support of the trees against which they reclined. Deep ravines in various directions gave an air of still sterner solemnity to the scene. The natural platform to which we had clambered was thickly overgrown with brambles, through which we soon discovered that it would have been impossible to force our way but for the scythe, and Jupiter, by direction of will, proceeded to clear for us a path to the foot of an enormously tall tulip tree, which stood, with some eight or ten oaks, upon the level and far surpassed them all. And all of the trees which I had then ever seen, in the beauty of its foliage and form, in the widespread of its branches, and in the general majesty of its appearance. When we reached this tree, Legrand turned to Jupiter and asked him if he thought he could climb it. The old man seemed a little staggered by the question, and for some moments made no reply. At length he approached the huge trunk, walked slowly around it, and examined it with minute attention. When he had completed his scrutiny, he merely said, Certainly, I can climb any tree I have ever seen in my life. 
Then, please climb as soon as possible, for it will soon be too dark to see what we're about. How far? inquired Jupiter. Get to the main trunk first, and then I will tell you which way to go. And here, stop, take this beetle with you. The bug will, the gold bug, cried Jupiter, drawing back in dismay. Why? If you are afraid, Jupiter, to take hold of a harmless little dead beetle, why, you can carry it up by this string. But if you do not take it up with you in some way, I will be under the necessity of breaking your head with this shovel. What's the matter now, said Jupiter, evidently shamed into compliance. You're only funnin' with me now. I fear the bug. What do I care for the bug? Here he took cautiously hold of the extreme end of the string, and maintaining the insect as far from his person as circumstances would permit, prepared to ascend the tree. In youth, the tulip tree, or Liriodendron tuliferium, the most magnificent of American foresters, has a trunk peculiarly smooth and often rises to a great height without lateral branches. But, in its riper age, the bark becomes gnarled and uneven, while many short limbs make their appearance on the stern. Thus the difficulty of ascension, in the present case, lay more in semblance than in reality. Embracing the huge cylinder as closely as possible with his arms and knees, seizing with his hands some projections, and resting his naked toes upon others, Jupiter, after one or two narrow escapes falling, at length wriggled himself into the first great fork, and seemed to consider the whole business as virtually accomplished. The risk of the achievement was, in fact, now over, although the climber was some sixty or seventy feet from the ground. "'Which way now, Will?' he asked. "'Keep up the largest branch, the one on this side,' said Legrand. Apparently, with little trouble, Jupiter continued, ascending higher and higher, until no glimpse of his squat figure could be obtained through the dense foliage which enveloped it. Presently, his voice was heard in a sort of halloo. "'How much further? How high up are you?' "'Ever so far,' he replied. "'Can see the sky through the top of the tree.' "'Never mind the sky, but attend to what I say.' Look down the trunk and count the limbs below you on this side. How many have you passed? I have passed four on this side. Then go one limb higher. In a few minutes, the voice was heard again, announcing that the seventh limb was attained. Now, Jupe cried Legrand, evidently much excited. I want you to work your way out upon that limb as far as you can. If you see anything strange, let me know. By this time, what little doubt I might have entertained of my poor friend's insanity was put finally at rest. I had no alternative but to conclude him stricken with lunacy, and I became seriously anxious about getting him home. While I was pondering about what was best to be done, Jupiter's voice was again heard. I am scared to go further. This dead limb is in the way. "'Did you say it was a dead limb, Jupiter?' cried Legrand in a quavering voice. "'Yes, it is dead.' "'What in the name of heaven shall I do?' asked Legrand, seemingly in the greatest distress. "'Do?' said I, glad of an opportunity to him to prose a word. 
Why come home and go to bed? Come now, that's a fine fellow. It's getting late, and besides, you remember your promise. Jupiter, cried he, without heeding me in the least. Do you hear me? Yes, I do. Try the wood well, then, with your knife, and see if you think it very rotten. Sure enough, he replied in a few moments, but not so very rotten as might be. Might venture out a little bit further on that limb by myself, that's true. By yourself, what do you mean? Why, the bug, this very heavy bug. Ah, suppose I drop him down first, and then the limb won't break. You infernal scoundrel, cried Legrand, apparently much relieved. What do you mean by telling me such nonsense as that? As sure as you drop that beetle, I'll break your neck. Do you hear me? Oh, well, now listen. If you will venture out on the limb as far as you think safe, and not let go the beetle, I'll make you a present of a silver dollar as soon as you get down. I'm going, I'm going. How far? Out to the end here, fairly screamed Legrand. You say you're out to the end of that limb? Soon to the end. Oh, Lord. What is on this tree? Well, cried Legrand, highly delighted. What is it? Why, it's nothing but a skull. Somebody left his head up here in this tree, and the crows have gobbled every bit of meat off of it. A skull, you say? Very well. How is it fastened to the limb? What holds it on? Ah, uh, sure enough, I need to look. Why, it's quite curious. On my word, there's a great big nail in the skull. Well, Jupiter, do you hear me? Do exactly as I tell you. Okay. Pay attention, then. Find the left eye of the skull. Hmm. Okay, well, there's no eye left at all. Uh, curse your stupidity. Yes, I know my right from my left. It's my left hand that I chop the wood with. To be sure, you are left-handed and your left eye is on the same side. Now, I suppose you can find the left eye of the skull or the place where the left eye has been. Have you found it? There was a long pause. Is the left eye of the skull on the same side as the left hand of the skull, too? Because the skull doesn't have a bit of a hand at all. Ah, never mind. I got the left eye now. Here it is. What do you want with it? Let the beetle drop through it as far as the string will reach, but be careful and not let go. Okay, it's done. Mighty easy thing for me to put the bug through the hole. Look for him out through below. During this colloquy, no portion of Jupiter's person could be seen, but the beetle, which he had suffered to descend, was now visible at the end of the string and glistened like a globe of burnished gold in the last rays of the setting sun, some of which still faintly illuminated the eminence upon which we stood. The scarabaeus hung quite clear of any branches, and if allowed to fall, would have fallen at our feet. Legrand immediately took the scythe and cleared it with a circular space, three or four yards in diameter just beneath the insect, and having accomplished this, ordered Jupiter to let go of the string and come down from the tree. Driving a peg with great nicety into the ground, at the precise spot where the beetle fell, my friend now produced from his pocket a tape measure. Fastening one end of this at that point of the trunk of the tree which was nearest the peg, he unrolled it till he reached the peg and thence 
further unrolled it, in the direction already established by the two points of the tree and the peg, for the distance of fifty feet, Jupiter clearing away the brambles with the scythe. At the spot thus attained a second peg was driven, and about this, as a center, a rude circle, about four feet in diameter, described. Taking now a spade himself, and giving one to Jupiter and one to me, Legrand begged us to set about digging as quickly as possible. To speak the truth, I had no especial relish for such amusement at any time, and at that particular moment would willingly have declined it, for the night was coming on and I felt much fatigued with the exercise already taken. But I saw no mode of escape and was fearful of disturbing my poor friend's equanimity by a refusal. Could I have depended indeed upon Jupiter's aid, I would have had no hesitation in attempting to get the lunatic home by force. But I was too well assured of the old man's disposition to hope that he would assist me under any circumstances in a personal contest with Will. I made no doubt that the latter had been infected with some of the innumerable southern superstitions about money buried, and that his fantasy had received confirmation by the finding of the Scarabaeus, or perhaps by Jupiter's obstinacy in maintaining it to be a bug of real gold. A mind disposed to lunacy would readily be led away by such suggestions, especially if chiming in with favorite preconceived ideas, and then I called to mind a poor fellow's speech about the Beatles being the index of his fortune. Upon the whole, I was sadly vexed and puzzled, but at length I concluded to make a virtue of necessity, to dig with a good will, and thus the sooner to convince the visionary by ocular demonstration of the fallacy of the opinion he entertained. The lanterns having been lit, we all fell to work with a zeal worthy of more rational cause, and as the glare fell upon our persons and implements, I could not help thinking how picturesque a group we composed, and how strange and suspicious our labors must have appeared to any interloper who, by chance, might have stumbled upon our whereabouts. We dug very steadily for two hours. Little was said, and our chief embarrassment lay in the yelpings of the dog, who took exceeding interest in our proceedings. He at length became so obstreperous that we grew fearful of his giving the alarm to some stragglers in the vicinity. Or rather, this was the apprehension of Legrand. For myself, I should have rejoiced at any interruption which might have enabled me to get the wanderer home. The noise was at length very effectually silenced by Jupiter, who, getting out of the hole with a dogged air of deliberation, tied the brute's mouth up with one of his suspenders and then returned, with a grave chuckle, to his task. When the time mentioned had expired, we had reached a depth of five feet, and yet no signs of any treasure became manifest. A general pause ensued, and I began to hope that the farce was at an end. The Grand, however, although evidently much disconcerted, wiped his brow thoughtfully and recommenced. We had excavated the entire circle of four feet diameter, and now we slightly enlarged the limit and went to the farther depth of two feet. Still nothing appeared. The gold-seeker, whom I sincerely pulled, at length clambered from the pit, with the bitterest disappointment imprinted upon every feature, and proceeded, slowly and reluctantly, to put on his coat, which he had thrown off at the beginning of his labor. In the meantime, I made no remark. Jupiter, at a signal from his friend, began to gather up the tools. This done, and the dog having been unmuzzled, we turned in profound silence toward home. We had taken perhaps a dozen steps in this direction, when, with a loud oath, Legrand 
strode up to Jupiter and seized him by the collar. Jupiter opened his eyes and mouth to the fullest extent, let fall the spades and fell upon his knees. You scoundrel, said Legrand, hissing out the syllables from between his clenched teeth. You infernal black villain! Speak, I tell you. Answer me this instant without prevarication. Which? Which is your left eye? Well, isn't this my left eye for certain? roared the terrified Jupiter, placing his hand upon his right organ of vision, and holding it there with a desperate pertinacity, as if in immediate dread of Will's attempt at a gouge. Thought so. I knew it. Hurrah, vociferated Legrand, letting him go and executing a series of curvets and caracoles, much to the astonishment of his valet, who, arising from his knees, looked mutely from him to myself, and then from me to him. Come. We must go back, said the latter. The game's not up yet. And he again led the way to the tulip tree. Jupiter, said he, when we reached its foot, come here. Was the skull nailed to the limb with the face outward or with the face to the limb? Well, the face was out, so that the crows could get at the eyes good without any trouble. Well, then, was it this eye or that which you dropped the beetle? Here Legrand touched each of Jupiter's eyes. It was this eye, the left eye, just as you told me. And here it was his right eye that he indicated. That will do. We must try it again. Here, my friend, about whose madness I now saw, or fancied that I saw, certain indications of method, removed the peg which marked the spot where the beetle fell, to a spot about three inches to the westward of its former position. Taking now the tape measure from the nearest point of the trunk to the peg, as before, and continuing the extension in a straight line to the distance of fifty feet, a spot was indicated, removed by several yards, from the point at which we had been digging. Around the new position, a circle, somewhat larger than in the former instance, was now described, and we again set to work with the spades. I was dreadfully weary, but scarcely understanding what had occasioned the change in my thoughts, I felt no longer any great aversion from the labor imposed. I had become most unaccountably interested, nay, even excited. Perhaps there was something amid all the exterminant demeanor of Legrand, some air of forethought or of deliberation, which impressed me. I dug eagerly, and now and then caught myself actually looking for something that very much resembled expectation, full of fancied treasure, the vision of which had demented my unfortunate companion. At a period of such vagaries of thought most fully possessed me, and when we had been at work perhaps an hour and a half, we were again interrupted by the violent howlings of the dog. His uneasiness in the first instance had been evidently, but the result of playfulness or caprice, but he now assumed a bitter and serious tone. Upon Jupiter's again attempting to muzzle him, he made furious resistance, and leaping into the hole, tore up the mold frantically with his claws. In a few seconds he had uncovered a mass of human bones, forming two complete skeletons intermingled with several buttons of metal and what appeared to be the dust of decayed woolen. One or two strokes of a spade upturned the blade of a large Spanish knife. As we dug further, three or four loose pieces of gold and silver coin came to light. At the sight of these, the joy of Jupiter could scarcely be restrained. But Will's countenance wore an air of extreme disappointment. He urged us, however, to continue our exertion, and the words were hardly uttered when I stumbled and fell forward. 
having caught the toe of my boot in a large ring of iron that lay buried in the loose earth. We now worked in earnest, and never did I pass ten minutes of more intense excitement. During this interval we had fairly unearthed an oblong chest of wood, which, from its perfect preservation and wonderful hardness, had plainly been subjected to some mineralizing process, perhaps that of the bichloride of mercury. This box was three feet and a half long, three feet broad, and two and a half feet deep. It was firmly secured by bands of wrought iron, riveted and forming a kind of open trellis work over the hole. On each side of the chest, near the top, were three rings of iron, six in all, by means of which a firm hold could be attained by six persons. Our utmost united endeavors served only to disturb the coffer very slightly in its bed. We at once saw the impossibility of removing so great a weight. Luckily, the sole fastenings of the lid consisted of two sliding bolts. These we drew back, trembling and panting with anxiety. In an instant, a treasure of incalculable value lay gleaming before us. As the rays of the lanterns fell within the pit, there flashed upward a glow and a glare from a confused heap of gold and of jewels that absolutely dazzled our eyes. We'll return with our story on our next episode. I want to remind you that we're always on the hunt for great stories like this one to feature in the show. And if you have any suggestions, please email me, bigvoicej at gmail.com. We've got a YouTube channel full of stories from the show. Go to tiny.cc slash bvjbedtime. Don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps to spread the word that we're putting people to sleep every single night. And if you'd like to support the show, there's a buy me a coffee link on every page and post. Thank you so much for listening. Good night. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. (laughs)